Herschel Walker tells a bowl of applesauce he's overcome mental illness. Trump tells Jews to get their act together. And America trades in the Constitution in order to lower gas prices. It's politics as usual on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. And Ike to you, and Ike to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 393 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. Less than three weeks to go. We've had 50-50 Senates before. That's what emerged from that 50-50 presidential race of 2000. But never have we seen a political landscape so filled with this amount of anger, viciousness, lies, and hate. We're now at the point where candidates don't even pretend to be honest anymore. Once, people talked about staying true to their beliefs. Now it's just about winning. People don't care about long-held positions or hypocrisy as long as their side wins. Less than three weeks to go. No one can say with any authority who's going to win. Our role? Vote. And get your friends to vote. Vote while we still have the right to vote. The Senate seat in Pennsylvania, which Republican Pat Toomey is giving up after two terms, has long been thought of as the best chance for a Democratic pickup. The party's candidate is John Fetterman, the Commonwealth's eight lieutenant governor, whose unorthodox dress code, a hoodie and basketball shorts, along with a bald head and goatee, is not the kind of candidate we've seen since Jesse Ventura was elected governor of Minnesota 24 years ago. Very liberal in a state that is pretty much culturally conservative, just about everything between Pittsburgh and Philly, he had nonetheless charmed his way with voters, progressive and conservative alike. His opponent, TV celebrity Dr. Mehmet Oz, wasn't declared the winner of his tight Republican primary until days after the voting. Oz was best known for pushing miracle weight loss pills on television. He also once held moderate views on social issues, but he swerved way to the right once he got in the race and was endorsed by Donald Trump. But let's hold up the general election news for a second, because something happened two days before the primary back in May. Though with breaking news this Sunday evening about a Democrat running for U.S. Senate. Good evening, I'm Joe Holden, Pennsylvania. Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman says he has had a stroke. Fetterman released a video this afternoon saying the stroke happened Friday and was caused by a blood clot from his heart. The stroke almost killed him. Nonetheless, he went on to win an easier-than-expected primary victory. And for two months while he was off the campaign trail... He was content to mock Oz's attempt to sound like a regular guy with clever ads. But there are questions about the stroke, about how much he has really recovered, whether he has been honest about his condition, and whether he is fit to serve if elected. 
Jonathan Tamari is the national political reporter with the Philadelphia Inquirer and has been covering the race. John, welcome to The Political Junkie. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Well, if the Democrats are to hold the Senate, they almost have to win this seat. And polls for the longest time, as you know, showed Fetterman with a double-digit lead over Oz. But now, less than a month ago, the race is getting tighter and the Democrats are getting more nervous. What's been going on? Well, I think we have to start with the idea that just about everybody thought this is where this race would end up, that it was going to be a close race no matter what um, in Pennsylvania, because that's how Pennsylvania's Senate elections typically are. Um, it's rare to see one candidate really have a blowout. And so we, what we think those numbers over the summer were showing was that Oz, as you mentioned, came through this brutal Republican primary. There are a lot of Republicans who questioned whether he was really conservative and, you know, somewhere around 70% of the Republican primary voters chose somebody else. So there was a lot of people out there, even conservatives, who were not on board with Oz. And that's where it seems like he was really trailing Fetterman. And what's happened in the recent weeks, as the campaign has gotten going, as Republicans have attacked Fetterman some more, a lot of those Republicans are, are coming back to Oz and basically saying, I don't love this guy but I don't like Fetterman or I'm going to support my party. And what you're starting to see is that the race looks more like what a typical Pennsylvania race looks like, where there's a pretty similar amount of Democrats and Republicans and then a very small number of swing voters that tip the race either way. So it looks like it's close. It's probably going to stay close, it seems, unless there's some wild new development. And, and that's pretty typical for Pennsylvania. Well, for much of the campaign, it seemed like, you know, with, with Fetterman off the trail, the focus was on Oz, and he had a whole bunch of unforced errors. Uh, there was this one widely mocked TV commercial that showed him shopping in a supermarket and complaining about the rise in prices, which he blamed on the president. I thought I did some grocery shopping. I'm at Wegner's, and I, my wife wants some vegetables for crudite, right? So here's a broccoli. That's two bucks, not a ton of broccoli there. There's some asparagus. That's four dollars. Yep. Carrots. That's four more dollars. That's ten dollars of vegetables there. And then we need some guacamole. That's four dollars more. And she loves salsa. Yeah, there's salsa there. Six dollars. Must be a shortage of salsa. Guys, that's twenty dollars for crudite. This doesn't include the tequila. I mean, that's outrageous. And we got Joe Biden to thank for this. He was in either a, a Regner's or Wegmans, but he called it Wegners. I mean, you know, in the scheme of things, that may not be major stuff, but it just showed him, you know, for somebody who's, who's suspected of really living in New Jersey and not Pennsylvania, that probably didn't help. And then he, then he loaded his arms with, with, with broccoli and asparagus and carrots. And, and then, of course, you know, he say, why don't you get a grocery cart? I mean, why do you have to you know, carry all these things? And then he said his wife sent him shopping to get things for crudite, which... Fetterman had a lot of fun with. In PA, we call this a veggie tray. And if this looks anything other than a veggie tray to you, then I am not your candidate. And I'm serious. Dr. Oz doesn't even know the name of the grocery store that he's in. So, yeah, this is one of a few instances where you see Oz, you know, not really being an experienced politician and not kind of seeming to realize how some of the stuff that maybe was fine when you're just a TV star is going to play when you're running for public office. I mean, during his primary, there was another example where he went out to the 
to the walk of fame in, in Hollywood and was kissing his own star on the, on the walk of fame (laughs) and his opponents just made relentless use of that picture in their ads to paint him as this Hollywood elitist. And, and Fetterman has done the same thing with the crudite, you know, incident as we, if you want to call it that, you know, I saw a, a recent stump speech by Fetterman during a campaign rally. He spoke for about 10 minutes and probably a good third of it, was just jokes about crudite and veggie trays, and he was making fun of the fact that this wasn't opposition research. This was Oz's own team putting this video out. Like they thought it was really going to be hot and really hit. And and look, like you say, making a kind of a gaff statement about crudite not that big a deal in the scheme of things. But what it does is it feeds into what Democrats have been saying about this guy all along, which is that. He's just this really rich guy who doesn't actually understand everyday people and is just kind of pretending and saying what he thinks he needs to say in order to win the Senate race. And now, obviously, Republicans will disagree with that, but that's the argument Democrats are putting forward. And for them, this video uh, just fit right into that, and it's still a part of the Fetterman campaign to this day. I think another argument that Fetterman was making, or or or, or Democrats were making, whatever, was you know Oz's past pr- promotion of you know, magical miracle weight loss pills. Uh, you know, a claim that that Oz has had to back down on when he was testifying before Congress, and that all became part. of we're talking about having you know Fetterman having fun here. There was this Fetterman ad that showed Dorothy, Toto, and company on their way to see, uh, guess what, uh, The Wizard of Oz. We'd like you to keep your promise to us, if you please, sir. And now I've got the number one miracle in a bottle to burn your fat. It is the new Miracle Berry. Lightning in a bottle. The miracle of the year. It's raspberry ketone. C. buckthorn. Alpha cyclodextrin. Green coffee bean extract. Yacon syrup. Red palm oil. Garcinia cambogia. It's a miracle flower. This miracle pill. Brand new miracle. Do you believe that there's a miracle pill out there? There's not a pill that's going to help you long-term lose weight and live your, the best life without diet and exercise. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You may think magic is make-believe, but this little bean has scientists saying they found a magic weight loss cure for every body type. Yeah, John, I mean, it was ads like this, as fun as they were, but they helped Fetterman open up a double-digit lead. And then, and then you had Oz, who's a doctor, no less, making fun of Fetterman's stroke. So again, until a couple of weeks ago, it seemed like everything was going Fetterman's way. It was, although, I mean, there were still some signs that Republicans were coming home. And and, and to be honest with you, even when we saw Fetterman with that double-digit lead in the summer, both campaigns were saying, these Republican voters who maybe don't like Oz are eventually going to come around to him. This thing is going to get tight. It's going to get close. But again, yeah, the the medical advice, the idea of these miracle pills, again, it goes to this democratic narrative that he's just somebody you can't trust, that just says what he has to say in order to advance himself in whatever moment he's in. And even though the polls have gotten close overall, we are seeing that that is still a lingering problem for Oz. Even among Republicans, there's not a lot of support for him. A lot of Republican voters are saying that they're supporting Oz mostly because they don't like Fetterman, not because they particularly like Oz. And you're seeing polls that ask 
who understands, you know, my life and my economic situation. And Fetterman has a significant lead on that measure. The economy remains the number one issue in most polling uh, for this race. And generally, that's an advantage for Republicans. But we're seeing some polls that show that Fetterman is more trusted. And I think that goes back to the idea that people think he can relate more to regular people than this really rich TV celebrity. But I have to say, though, that, that once Fetterman returned to campaigning, you couldn't help notice that things didn't sound right. I'm going to play a little, some tape of uh, a Fetterman campaigning that, that you could hear the effects of the stroke. Being anti-union is anti-American. What is wrong with demanding for an easy safe kind of their income, a path to a safe place for them to win, or excuse me, to, to work. I, I think this was a couple, you know, a couple of weeks ago, and I, I've heard that he has improved, he, Fetterman, has improved, but I mean, this probably put a lot of questions in the minds of many voters. Yeah, and there are still stumbles on occasion when you see him at his events, but, but less frequently. Um, he, he is more kind of fluent and fluid in his speech than, than when he was first got back out on the campaign trail. He's doing more events now than he did before. He's doing sometimes multiple events in a day. So he's trying to show that he's capable of doing the job. Uh, but where, where it really did start to hurt him is that Oz kind of turned it against him by not just saying he might not be fit to, to serve, but also challenging to de- debate and saying, well, if you are healthy, then there's no reason not to debate me. And Fetterman was really pushing off having a debate with Oz. And then Oz used that in turn to say, well, either he's not as healthy as he says he is, or he's just hiding his views. And that really turned the focus after the summer away from Oz being this rich New Jersey guy and really started raising questions about Fetterman. And that is when you started to see Oz start to gain some ground slowly but surely as he kind of took the focus off himself and put it on Fetterman and raised questions about him. And you've seen Oz is still very unpopular, but Fetterman's negative ratings have also risen up. Not quite as high, but they're a lot higher than they were earlier on. Yeah, I want to play this ad. I mean, earlier, of course, Oz got such heat for mocking Fetterman's stroke, saying, you know, had he eaten his vegetables, he wouldn't have gotten a stroke, which was kind of... You know, something pretty amazing for a doctor to say. But Mm. but in this ad, you see Oz, you know, he's jogging. And as he's jogging, he says, look, I'm I'm praying for Fetterman's recovery. But um, but there are other issues that we have to uh, pay attention to. And that's crime. Let me play this ad. You may have heard John Fetterman's back on the campaign trail. As a surgeon who's performed thousands of these operations, I know how scary this can be for a patient. I've been praying for him. I'm glad he's okay. Now that he's back, John Fetterman can't keep hiding from voters forever. I mean, Joe Biden hid in his basement. How did that work out for us? We need to debate John's radical agenda. Fetterman would destroy our energy industry, canceling pipelines, crushing fracking and drilling, all while driving up gas prices for everyone. And Fetterman supports releasing one-third of the prison population and wants to eliminate life sentences for murderers. That's just crazy. I can promise you this, Pennsylvania, I'll bring a dose of reality to John Fetterman and the radical left. And as your next senator, I'll be in your community to hear your thoughts and fight to be your voice in Washington. I'm glad Fetterman's healthy, so we can worry less about his heart and his hoodie and more about the crazy leftist ideas in his head. 
John, it seems like Oz, first of all, he learned his lesson about making jokes about his opponent's health. But let me offer two observations and tell me what you think of it. One, voters do have questions about Fetterman's health and whether the campaign has been honest about it. And two, attacking Fetterman as being soft on crime seems to be as as big a part of anything as to why the race is narrowed. I definitely agree with the second part. The first part about whether voters are really concerned with Fetterman's health, you know, there's kind of mixed reactions in polling. And in fact, there's a lot of polling that says that there are pretty significant majorities that are not concerned. And Fetterman has kind of used it as a relatable moment to say, hey, you know, how many of you have had a health issue in your life or your child or your parent or your grandparent? And you wouldn't want a doctor mocking you. And he really has used this as like a rallying point for his supporters. Uh, the crime issue, though, has much more clearly taken a toll on him. Um, if you look at the ads from the super PAC that's affiliated with Mitch McConnell, uh, the top Republican in the Senate, their ads have exclusively focused on crime. And it's just been one after another after another. And, uh, and Fetterman, the reason you kind of know it's working is that Fetterman has started to run rebuttal ads. So obviously he wouldn't be doing that if he didn't think that this was a concern or if this was something that was resonating with voters. Um, and, and this is part of a national strategy. You're seeing Republicans do this in Wisconsin's Senate race as well and, and other contests also. Uh, but they seem to think that they have a particularly strong case against Fetterman because he, a lot of these ads are him in his own words. He has talked in the past about decriminalizing all drugs. Uh, He has kind of backed away from that position and taken a more narrow stance and says he does not mean hard drugs now, but but he has said that in the past. And he also, as the lieutenant governor, chaired the state's board of pardons. And a big part of it, something he took a lot of pride in, was giving pardons or commutations to people who had served for a very long time, in many cases were now elderly, uh, not necessarily deemed to be a threat, any longer uh, had reformed, but he really emphasized this. And there were some people convicted of some pretty serious crimes, including murder, who he advocated for. And the Oz campaign is using that against him. Um, and that does seem to have taken a real toll on Fetterman. Well, we're coming down to the crunch, you know, crunch time of the campaign. And obviously, as you know, um, the two candidates have agreed to, to hold a debate on October 25th, exactly two weeks before the election. John, it, it sounds like it was a risk for the Democrat, but like, I guess he, he may have had no choice but to have the debate. Yeah, I don't know that you could get through an entire Senate race without having at least one debate. Uh, I mean, to not stand up before voters, I think, would raise even more questions. Um, and so, you know, we don't know how much debates really move people, but this one seems to have the potential to do it more than others because, again, partly because the two candidates have really spent most of the campaign talking about each other's personal traits and not talking a whole lot about their own policies. Uh, Fetterman does have some policies, but you don't hear from them. You don't hear him kind of advertising about them very much or even using them very much in his stump speech. Oz has dodged a number of major policy questions around abortion and the minimum wage and other issues. So this will be one of the few chances we get to actually see these folks on policy And I do think for Fetterman, it will be a test of some people will be looking to see how his health is. The tricky part there is that even before his stroke, he was not the best debater. He debated in the Democratic primary 
and it didn't really go well for him by pretty much all accounts. You know, it could be that his if his debate performance is off, it might just be that it's not a good format, that he doesn't do well in that format, but people might blame it on the stroke or raise questions about it. So um, I do think people will be watching it really, really closely. Coming just two weeks before the election day, we'll see how much it resonates. But uh, I think this one has more attention on it than most debates do. You know, I realize we've gone throughout this, this whole conversation without really talking about Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Have they become, you know, of course, the Republicans want to make this a referendum on Biden and the Democrats want to say that it's really about Trump. What do the numbers say about both Trump and Biden and their and how they are performing in Pennsylvania? I mean, neither is particularly popular right now. Um, you know, it goes a little back and forth about which one of them is more or less popular. But, you know, neither of them are seen as really huge assets, at least in a general election. Uh, you know, Oz stayed really close to Trump. He got Trump's endorsement during the primary, and that was probably one of the deciding factors that allowed him to win that primary that was so close. But he has not really, he did a rally with Trump in early September, but otherwise has largely kept his distance. You know, Fetterman showed up at an event with Biden at the Pittsburgh Labor Day parade. They were both there, but Fetterman kind of very notably used that as a point to emphasize a difference of opinion that they had, at least at that time on marijuana legalization. Um, We've seen Biden obviously take a step, at least in that direction this past week. But, you know, neither of them are really kind of clinging to to either Trump or Biden. And and I don't think either has really made the the current or former president a a major issue in this race. They've really kind of, they have two such big personalities that when it comes to personalities, it's really kind of focused entirely on the two candidates. Jonathan Tamari is the national political reporter with the Philadelphia Inquirer. John, it was great having you on the program. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to do it. You have to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. You find he is a wizard of Oz, if ever a wizard of Oz. If ever, ever a wizard of Oz, the wizard of Oz is one because, 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 because of the wonderful things he does. Pennsylvania is just one of 35 Senate seats up for grabs this year. 21, including the Keystone State, are held by Republicans. 14 are currently held by Democrats. There are a lot of races to watch with just three weeks to go. Jacob Rubashkin has the unenviable job of following all of them from his perch as political reporter and analyst for Inside Elections. Jacob, it's great having you back on the political junkie. And boy, this this key this midterm election is one we've never seen before. Well, thanks for having me, Ken. And you're absolutely right. Uh, this this midterm it could go one of several different ways. And uh, with three weeks or so to go, uh, there there's still a lot of different possibilities here. I think that's what's fascinated me a lot the most, because like earlier in the year, you know, we heard that one party was up, the other party was down. In the beginning, it was the Republicans that were up because, well, you know, it's it, they're the out party and, and Biden's numbers are terrible. So the Republicans should be up. And then we saw the Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court and then, well, maybe Democrats and pro-choice, pro-abortion rights uh, voters are getting the upper hand. So I think I think, and then then maybe maybe the Republicans are on a rebound. So I think it's been a dizzying experience, and, and I know that with the understanding 
that things can and may, and may very well change in the next three weeks. Where do things stand now? At the moment, it looks like Republicans are still the favorites to take back the United States House. They only need five seats net gain in order to win back the House. Uh, and the Democrats are perhaps slight favorites, but very close to 50-50 to maintain their majority in the United States Senate, where they currently have the narrowest possible majority. But there is uh, a fair degree of latitude on both of those outlooks. In the Senate, we see the most likely outcomes as anything from a Democratic expansion, a, a net gain of one seat, to a Democratic loss of one seat, and with it, the majority. And in the House, currently, our projection at Inside Elections is a Republican net gain of between eight to 20 seats. Now, an eight-seat gain would give them a, a bare majority in the chamber, just three more than they need, and would make governing quite difficult uh, for Republican leadership. A 20-seat gain would be uh, a very different outcome, even though they both would be control of the House. And it would be also very difficult for Joe Biden to get any kind of his agenda passed in the final two years with a, a larger Republican majority in the House. Absolutely, yeah. It, it, uh, the, the chances of anything Joe Biden wants getting passed are, are slim in a Republican-held House, but certainly uh, in, a, in a Republican House with a substantial Republican majority, it's hard to see anything but the barest functions of government. And even there, it's a question uh, passing um, in, in that situation. You know, as a nonpartisan observer, what would you say is at stake? I mean, other than the obvious Democratic control of the House and Senate, what is, what's at stake in the 2022 midterm elections? There are a lot of different storylines that are playing out in addition to control of Congress, which, of course, is incredibly important on the legislative side, on the appointment side. Even if Democrats lose the House, if they keep the Senate, that allows Biden to continue to fill judicial appointments, potential Supreme Court vacancies, things of that nature. So it is quite important, even if they lose unified control. More broadly, what we've seen across the country is a surge in the number of Republican candidates and Republican standard bearers who have been willing to cast out on or outright reject the election processes uh, of the various states in the U.S. and the results of the 2020 election. A lot of those people are running for offices that will be in charge of administering those elections moving forward, in addition to the role that Congress plays in the presidential election, which we saw play out in such dramatic fashion on January 6th of 2021. So the control of Congress is certainly at stake, but in a larger sense, control of the election system is at stake and control of the public's faith in that system is going to be very much tested uh, with, with so many different Republican candidates uh, running on this notion that the elections in this country are, are stolen or, or rigged, which, of course, they're not. And there's no evidence to suggest they are. But that is perhaps a, a, a greater concern in, in this election cycle than it ever has been before. You know, I mean, you talk about all these so-called election deniers who are running. And as you say, people who say that the uh, the election of 2020 was stolen or not fair and, and Donald Trump should still be president. But there are also candidates, and I have to say, Republican candidates 
who said that if they lose, they may not accept the results. Now that, you know, we've never had that any party. And you talk about all these controversies of the past, the, the, you know, the 1960 closeness, the 2000 closeness that was decided by the Supreme Court. But never have we had a, uh, an election where one party says, you know, if it doesn't go my way, uh, I'm just not going to accept it. That's I don't know where we train, you know, I mean, think of what we, you and I do for a living and think of the passion we have in what we do. And yet you have one political party saying uh, it may not matter. That's again, that's just beyond beyond. It's uncharted territory. We saw again how it can play out in real tragic fashion with the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election. And of course, that was the particular situation where the person denying the outcome of the race was already in office. And he had levers at his disposal to try and stay in power, which he made full use of that resulted in in what we saw happening in in January of 2021. I think it is slightly different when you're looking at a, a challenger who is refusing to accept the outcome, because from a legal and power perspective, uh, there, there is much less that someone like, say, a Doug Mastriano, uh, who is uh, but a humble state senator from Gettysburg, uh, can do when he says, well, I won't accept the results of the election if I lose, rather than if he were the incumbent governor of Pennsylvania, for instance, and were also refusing to accept the elections. But I do think the larger point of acclimating a, a substantial group of Americans into believing that the election system is rigged or fraudulent is is very dangerous, and I don't know how it's going to turn out uh, in in this cycle or in 2024 when some of these candidates will have come into office. And uh, I I believe Trump will be on the ballot again, trying to run for president. What do you make of polling? I've seen more distrust of polling methods and pollsters than in than I've ever seen before. I mean, there's also the the you know the, the seeming evidence that more Republican uh, voters don't cooperate with pollsters. What do you make of all that? Polling is still the best tool that we have to get empirical data on election outcomes before the elections actually take place. There's no substitute for polling that has been discovered yet, and so even with some of the flaws within the industry that have manifested themselves over the last decade or so. I think that it, it, is, it is pretty clear that in years when Donald Trump is on the ballot, 2016, 2020, the polls are overstating Democratic support, understating Republican support. We saw that at the state level in 2016, where the polling in places like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania was too favorable to Hillary Clinton. We saw that at pretty much every single level in 2020, at the state level, at the national level, and even and perhaps most concerningly at the congressional district level, uh, support for Democrats was overstated pretty much everywhere you looked across the country. But we didn't see it happen in 2018. By and large, the polling in 2018 was pretty spot on. We didn't see it happen, say, in Virginia in 2021 in that gubernatorial election. The polls very accurately showed the scope uh, and the the trajectory of that race as Glenn Youngkin made up ground against Terry McAuliffe and ultimately won by a couple of points. And so the midterms this cycle are going to be, in my mind, the first large-scale stress test of polling in 
the Trump or post-Trump era, uh, this question of whether there is something intrinsic about surveys that is causing them to understate Republican support or whether it is something specific about Trump himself being on the ballot that's throwing the numbers off, we'll have a much better sense after the election. You know, I mentioned earlier about the uh, Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, um, and, and, and I think polling, going back to polling, showed in, back in September that women were getting more motivated. And we saw that abortion referendum in Kansas uh, back in August. Do you see any uh, change in the dynamic uh, since the Supreme Court of uh, ruled, you know, overturn the road decision? Certainly the Dobbs decision at the end of June was helpful for Democrats to increase enthusiasm among their voter base. And what we saw both in public numbers and private numbers was that prior to the Dobbs decision, Republicans had a significant enthusiasm or motivation advantage more Republicans were highly motivated to go out and vote in the midterms than Democrats. And after the Dobbs decision, that advantage has shrunk or perhaps disappeared entirely. So Democrats are as engaged and as enthusiastic about turning out as are Republicans. And that has been a boon to Democratic chances across the board, but most notably in perhaps a, a tranche of races in the House, particularly that that were at the fringe of the battlefield, congressional districts that Joe Biden won by between 10 to 15 percentage points that earlier in the year looked like they were quite precarious, but have since uh, settled at a more uh, favorable level for, for Democrats and their candidates. Well, if the Democrats did get a boost with, with the Dobbs decision on, on, on abortion, uh, Republicans have to have the advantage on what's going on with the economy because... As everyone knows, inflation is the highest in 40 years, and it's still not being curbed. And every seems like every month the numbers are getting worse. So that has to be a you know the famous James Carville. It's the economy, stupid. That may be, and it probably is the number one issue. And if that's the case, that has to be good news for the Republicans. Absolutely, the economy is Republicans' best line of messaging, most effective line. Looking at the polling data. Voters disapprove of Biden's handling of the economy and inflation more than they disapprove of his handling on pretty much any other issue. That includes the other issues that Republicans like to talk about, like crime and the border. If Republicans had their way, they would be talking 100 percent about the economy, maybe a little bit of crime and the border sprinkled in there, but very much focused on economic concerns, on inflation, rising gas prices. It is it is the primary reason why. Republicans are still so well positioned in this midterm election, despite the fact that Republicans are on the whole viewed less favorably than Democrats, despite the fact that they have nominated candidates in quite a few of these races uh, that are fairly uh, distant from the mainstream of the politics of their constituencies, despite the fact that they're still operating at a, a financial disadvantage in a lot of these contests. Well, let me get away from the economy for a second. Um, you know, historically, uh, in a midterm election, the, the election's about a, uh, the party in power. And, of course, that's the Democrats. It's a, you know, it's a referendum on Joe Biden. But is it also a referendum on Donald Trump, even though he's not in office? But it's the Trumpism that, you know, pervades in the Republican Party. Is it, is it a referendum on both? 
I don't think that it's a referendum on Donald Trump. I think Democrats would love for it to be a referendum on Donald Trump, and the polling would indicate that Donald Trump is one of the few figures in American politics who, in a lot of these places in the most competitive races, is less popular than Joe Biden. That is still the case in a lot of these competitive states and districts. But I, I don't think that voters are seeing this as a Trump versus Biden race or a referendum on Trump as much as a referendum on Biden. I think to the extent that voters are thinking about this election as anything different than a straight up referendum on Biden and the Democrats, it's a, a choice election between the larger Republican Party uh, and, and the Democratic Party versus individual figures. So a choice election on, say, the issue of abortion. It's no longer just do you approve of Joe Biden and the way he's held the country. It's on the topic of abortion. Would you rather have Democrats making abortion laws or Republicans making abortion laws? And by and large, the American public would much rather prefer Democrats writing those laws than Republicans. Uh, The same deal on on questions of uh, the fate of democracy and election integrity by by smaller but still uh, real margins. You know, this is this is shown to be an issue where voters are looking less at Biden specifically and more at how are the two parties approaching this question of securing our elections from either the viewpoint of the elections were rigged. We know that's not the case, but a lot of people believe that. And how do we unrig them or how do we stop the people who are trying to mess up what is currently a, a fairly sound election system? You know, I, again, it, it presents itself as a choice, not between Biden and Trump, but between Democrats and Republicans more generally. I think Trump is still a prominent figure, but he is nowhere near as front and center of voters' minds as he was when he occupied the Oval Office. If, if we're talking about the sanctity of the voting system, certainly, do you think the January 6th hearings, do you think any minds were changed? I'm not so sure that very many minds were changed. I do think that to the extent the January 6th hearings have had an effect, it has kept the specter of Trump alive in the minds of the most engaged and informed Democratic voters, the kinds of voters who have been watching the hearings on cable news, on on broadcast news. Uh, Going back to this question of midterm dynamics, what we so often see is the party in power is far less engaged than the party out of power, and that differential creates the opportunity for the out party to sweep back into control. So for Democrats, it is useful that so many of their voters still have January 6th fresh in their minds because it scares them. It was a scary day, and it, it connects the, the fear of that day to the very legitimate concerns about how a lot of these Republicans are going to approach subsequent elections. And so I don't think it's so much a persuasion issue as it is a motivation issue, but I think it shouldn't be discounted as a motivation issue, keeping that fear of Trump and Trumpism and the, the election denialism fresh in the minds of enough Democratic voters that they show up when, when in a typical midterm, they, they would show up in far fewer numbers. We political junkies know how significant this midterm election is. Do you get the sense that the electorate does as well? Absolutely. It's been really stunning to see how high the levels of engagement are 
this midterm election. In 2018, we saw record turnout. About 50 percent of uh, eligible voters showed up to the polls in the 2018 midterm. That was an increase of 14 percent from 2014, the previous midterm, when just 36 percent of eligible voters cast ballots. And so uh, there, there was a thought that perhaps it was the Trump effect, that Trump's presence in the White House made everyone so much more engaged and that when he left the White House, voters would revert to their previous habits. And so far, there's very little evidence to suggest that's the case and plenty of evidence, be it in turnout in special elections uh, over the last couple months or in some of the early vote numbers that we've begin to, begun to see trickle in, that voters are highly engaged and that this midterm will see turnout that at least rivals the turnout that we saw in 2018. Perhaps it doesn't exceed that that 100-year record, but uh, it'll certainly be in the same neighborhood rather than uh, a much more uh, dismal performance like 2014. Jacob Rubashkin is a political reporter and analyst for Inside Elections, the nonpartisan political website. Jacob, this is an, uh, an election for the ages, and you're on top of it all, and I really appreciate you being on The Political Junkie. Of course. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe. And please, please vote. I'll see you soon. And we've got lovely dancers, too. There's nothing else you have to do. Take our travel out the